We are continuing in our series, um, Imagine, Imagining the Kingdom, and we're in the fifth part of that, uh, Imagining the Kingdom. The subtitle for today's message is Living in the Shadow of Mount Sinai, or, or, I'm sorry, Living in the Shadow of Mount Zion, not Sinai. Um, now, <clears throat> last week it was Pentecost Sunday, and we looked at the background. What really is the background for this text in Hebrews is the events of Pentecost Sunday. And so we looked at that. We're going to look at that text again today and just kind of with that in mind, look at what it is saying to us from this text. But again, uh, in order to to, to grasp the the series itself, uh, when when we talk about imagining the kingdom, we're not talking about imagining things that aren't real. We're actually talking about imagining things that are real. But the truth is, we all live by our imagination. Uh, we all imagine, for instance, that money is valuable, so we uh, spend our lives working to get more of it. But in reality, there's no actual intrinsic value to money. But it's an imagined value that we all have, and so we, we live and work for it. God's kingdom tells us of eternal things that actually are of true value. And our world keeps telling us they're not of any value. So we have to train our imaginations to work by faith and think that the things of eternity are, in fact, the way we want to live our lives and, and let them be the guide for our lives. So that's that summed up a couple of the sermons, uh, if you will. And so with some of that background in mind, um, let's pick up reading in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, and we'll begin reading in verse 18 just by way of getting the context. Hebrews 12 and verse 18, I'll be reading from the New International Version. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Well, just to pause here. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews, actually, he never uses the word Sinai, but clearly that's what he's referring to because he quotes text right from the Mount Sinai scene and describes explicitly what we read in Exodus 19, 20, and in Deuteronomy and the accounts regarding Mount Sinai. You've not come to Mount Sinai, we could say in short. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, may it write big in our hearts the truths, the realities, the pictures of your heavenly kingdom that we can't see, but help us to see them with the eyes of our hearts that we might live in them. We might know what it looks like to live in them and then do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Elena Gorokova grew up in the Soviet Union. She begins the story of her life and her autobiography, Mountains of Crumbs, with her grandparents when her mother was quite young and the Bolshevik Revolution was fully underway. She explains the origin of the crumb game, which her grandmother used to play with her uncle, the youngest of her mother's siblings. She writes this, The revolution, with its promise of liberation and paradise for all working people, seemed to offer the hope that Russia was on the mend, that Centuries of inequality and slave labor were finally over, and peace and prosperity almost within reach. But in 1920, food rations shrank yet again, and the pall of famine settled over the country, a dawn to the six decades of terror already bleeding on the horizon. That was when my, mother in, my grandmother invented the crumb game. At six and five years of age, my mother and her brother Seema were old enough to ignore their growling stomachs and make do with nothing but a piece of black bread and a cube of sugar. But three-year-old Yuva, my uncle, clenched his fists and bawled from hunger. Look at how much you've got, my grandmother would say as she broke a piece of bread and a square of sugar into crumbs with her fingers. A whole mountain of crumbs. My mother and Seema, older and wiser, would exchange a secret look of pity for their baby brother, who allowed himself to be so easily fooled. Two mountains, my grandmother would say. Yuva would stop wailing and rub the snot over his cheeks, pacified by the semblance of abundance. Two whole mountains. More bread and sugar than the one sad little square on everyone else's plate. Enough crumbs to pick at for a whole hour to stick into his mouth one by one, plentiful and sweet. The little game was the working metaphor of her book. The mountain of crumbs, well, it was the Soviet Union with its pretending that everything was going to get better. In a twist of irony, their communist manifesto turned out to be be the opiate of the people. Gorokova used an age-old symbol of kingdoms to represent the Soviet Union. Whether she realized it or not, I do not know. A mountain. You see, mountains have always been symbolic in ancient literature of kingdoms. And so when we read about this in Scripture, we need to recognize, and, and of course the author in Hebrews finally gets to the point, we are receiving a kingdom. You've come to a mountain, we're receiving a kingdom. There's a connection between those. Gorokova picks up on that, whether knowingly or otherwise, in her telling of this game, uh, a mountain of crumbs. As we saw last week, the two kingdoms, or the two mountains of Hebrews 12, are representative 
of two covenants, which God's kingdom could be built on, might be built on. One was the Mosaic covenant of Sinai, which is what the Old Covenant Israel or Old uh, Testament Israel was built on. And the other is uh, where the New Covenant of Zion or of the Messiah, uh, that covenant which Jesus made with us. The metaphor is one of faith. It's going back to that Tagorakova's story, the Soviet Union in her story was a mountain of crumbs because faith in its progress, its future, would turn out to crumble, to be meaningless. Elena's story reveals how she was disillusioned early in life. That is to say, she grew up seeing the false hopes and rejected the myth. She would not imagine the promise of fields of wheat harvest full and blessed as they were told to imagine. You see, every kingdom requires faith to work. It's easy for most of us who lived during that time to see the lie of the Soviet Union. Now, if you were born after the Cold War was over, you're probably not aware of all that. But growing up, you could see the lie. It was so obvious that it wasn't working and never would work. But, you know, our democracy requires faith as well. And it's appropriate to put a certain faith in it. But to, to put too much faith in any form of earthly government... To expect it to deliver what only Christ's kingdom can deliver would cross the line into idolatry. The two mountains that we read of here in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, Sinai and Zion, are contrasted in our text. In the original language, the parallel between them is more obvious as the two words Sinai and and Zion were actually only different by one letter. You had uh, Sina and Sion, and you just... Change the A for an O, and you move two of the letters, and you've got the same, you know, the, the same words. So um, it, it was an obvious comparison that we don't uh, see as easily. But both mountains required imagination. In the case of the first mountain, you have not come to Mount Sinai. It looks backward. The other forward. Sinai called them to imagine their past. They were gathered with Moses and the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Zion calls us to imagine the future, by earthly measure, the heavenly city, and ourselves present with them. To live in view of that future is how faith becomes the substance of what is hoped for, as we read in the first part of chapter 11, the evidence of what is not seen. So we're going to explore... Are called to imagine the kingdom from our text under three headings. The first, the untouchable, unshakable things of Mount Zion. The untouchable, unshakable things of Mount Zion. The second, the unchangeable God of Mount Zion. And third, living in the shadow of Mount Zion. Living in the shadow is really, that whole point is application of what these first two points and what we've been talking about throughout this series as well. But first, the untouchable, unshakable things of Mount Zion. I want you to notice two things that our text says about these two mountains. First, Sinai can be touched. Zion cannot be touched. Sinai can be touched. It was a mountain. Moses climbed it. The people could touch it. They'd get in trouble if they did. But it was a touchable, visible, seeable mountain. Zion cannot be touched. Zion requires faith in a different way than Sinai did. It's an unseen, eternal place. The beginning 
of this section, in, in the beginning of Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Sinai could be seen and touched. Zion cannot be seen and touched, which means that it is not of the earthly temple mount, but a much higher mountain all the way to heaven. Zion is part of the unseen, and it is the unseen by which all that is seen was actually created. So it's the dominant story. It's the truest of true, whereas everything seen is changeable in the logic of Hebrews. Second thing to notice about these two mountains, the first was Sinai can be touched and Zion cannot be touched. The second is Sinai can be shaken, Zion cannot be shaken. The two are related. Shaken refers to what can be taken away or is passing away. Zion will never pass away. The Mosaic Covenant of Sinai has passed away. Because Zion cannot be touched, because it's part of the unseen eternal, it cannot be shaken. In Hebrews 8.13, we read this in, in contrasting the New Covenant with the Mosaic Covenant. It says, by calling the covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Writing a short time, this, this sermon that we call Hebrews, really a sermon more than a letter, but this, this book, as it were, we call it Hebrews, was written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and this, it will soon pass away, is most certainly a reference to the fact that even the outward semblance of that covenant will be wiped away when that temple is destroyed. A prophetic word, if you will. Zion, because it is unseen, because it is part of what came before everything visible, cannot be shaken and therefore can never be removed. See, we, we tend to think seeing is believing, don't we? That's what we're told, seeing is believing. We think that we, it, it, what we can touch and see is certain. If we can put it in a test tube and prove it scientifically, it's absolute. But what is unseen and eternal came first and will remain. Plato described the unseen as forms, which he said are eternal and changeless. We talked about this a couple weeks back, but just to remind us of these things, to go back and... And, and go over it again. Forms. The unseen had forms. And those are eternal and change, changeless. And those unseen forms are ultimately, according to Plato, in control of the material world. The changeable matter, if you will. Uh, another uh, Nova, PBS. I, again, I talked about this, but I just want to bring these things to our mind again. Uh, they have an episode on WIMP particles. W-I-M-P. WIMP particles. Weekly Interacting Massive Particles. And you learn there that, quote, in order to create the kind of gravity that draws large amounts of matter together, the particle would need to have mass, lots of it. But because it's invisible and eludes detection, invisible and eludes detection, interesting, it also must be weakly interacting. According to scientists, wimps could pass right through the earth without colliding with anything. Talk about believing in things you can't see. It's true, though. <laughs> By way of analogy, God's kingdom is massive. It eludes detection and is weakly interacting. At least that's what we see in the cross. 
weekly interacting. Just because things are invisible and undetectable doesn't mean, according to science anyway, that they don't exist. Because Zion is unseen, the logic of the preacher of Hebrews is that it is unshakable. And the invisible, the eternal things are far more certain than the visible, shakable, removable things. Anything seen is shakable, and if it's shakable, it might be removed. What are some of the things that we see at Mount Zion that we find at Mount Zion that we cannot see but we have to imagine? Well, first, we read in verse 22, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the same heavenly city that the patriarchs were seeking back in chapter 11, verse 16, when they were sojourning by faith. They weren't actually looking for earthly Jerusalem and an earthly temple. That was never the real goal that they had. This heavenly city is what we are seeking too. This is where our hope lies. What else do we see in this Mount Zion, this heavenly city? Well, according again to verse 22, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I don't know about you, but I've kind of figured out about humans. We like big. We do. We like big. That's why we gather in cities. Right? And if we're going to gather in cities, why not New York City? Cause, why? Because big is better. It, it, we don't even have to explain why big is better. It's just better. And there's so many reasons why we like big. And, and, you know, we like it about a lot of things. And when these believers came together, remember, they were in the synagogue. I mean, at least when they went to the synagogue, you know, that was a fairly sizable group of people that would gather in most of these synagogues. And most of them were even pagans at one point, and the pagans gathered. And there was a lot of people that gathered in pagans. This is kind of the, the life of the rich and famous. But now when they gathered as the church, maybe 20. A lot of them were poor. Maybe 50. Perchance there were 100. Certainly smaller than even this gathering in most cases, by a good bit. And most of them were people of no consequence in the world. When these believers gathered, it was small. And the preacher calls them to imagine just how big their gathering really is. There are angels innumerable gathered together with you. But not just that, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. <laughs> like thousands of people too. You're gathered not just with yourselves, but with thousands of other people. Thousands upon thousands, again, uncountable. Now, who is the firstborn, the church of the firstborn? Who's the firstborn? Jesus. And he's the firstborn of the dead. And what's the other phrase the New Testament uses in relation to the firstborn? Firstborn of the new creation, right? The new creation began with his resurrection from the dead. The firstborn is a reference to his coming up and having brand new life. We are the church of the new creation that, that is in Christ Jesus. Our names are already recorded as citizens in heaven. And we are in that new creation when we live by faith. So we've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Oh, where else have we come? Verse 23 again. God To God, the judge of all. 
We've come to God, the judge of all. Now, in a world that's fixated on judge not, lest ye be judged, which is interpreted to mean that there is never a place for judgment by so many, to think that God is the judge of all might seem like saying he's the evilest of all beings to some people. God forbid that he judges. However, in truth, the only reason we can ever reserve judgment as human beings and stay sane is if we have confidence that God will judge all. The only thing that makes a walk of faith possible is if we believe God is the judge of all. More on that later, but that leads to the next one. We see the fifth thing we see at Mount Zion is the spirits of righteous, the, the righteous made perfect in verse 23 again. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, who are these? Well, they're the saints that have gone before us. Did you know that when we gather together in worship in the heavenly city, we are gathering in that heavenly city where Doug Getches and Alice Jensen and George Brown and Peggy Korb and Danny Hopping and Jim Elliott and James the Apostle and Paul and Peter and so many others who have gone before us are. We're gathering together with them. Amen. These are those who set out to live by faith in the truth of the kingdom of Christ, speculating their lives on the kingdom, trusting that God would be the judge of all. They've been perfected. Now, of course, we haven't, but they have. All who live by faith will be one day. The sixth thing we see there, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We, we haven't come to Moses, but to Jesus. It's no slight to Moses, by the way. He was faithful as a servant, according to the book of Hebrews earlier in the book. Jesus is the son. The Mosaic covenant wasn't bad. In fact, the problem with the Mosaic covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, is that God found fault with the people. Not the covenant, but with the people. The covenant was fine. The problem is the people couldn't keep it. So we need a different kind of covenant. The covenant was great. But the fault was with the people. The strength of the new covenant is that the people, well, we'll say the person, is Jesus. No fault in him. And all who are in him get the benefits of the covenant. And then finally, the seventh thing we see at this mountain, in verse 24 we see it again, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. What was the word that the blood of Abel spoke? God comes to Cain after he's killed his brother, and he says, your brother's, your brother's blood, try to say those two words together fast seven times, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was it crying to God? Guilt, the guilt of his brother who had killed him. It was crying out about injustice. The innocent one had been killed by the guilty one. The blood of Jesus cries out to God about our forgiveness. He laid down his life for us. And yet, irony of ironies, like Abel, the innocent one, was killed by the guilty. But instead of crying out our guilt, it cries out our forgiveness. Oh, the precious blood of Christ. Amen? You see, Mount Zion is that unseen gathering 
which we are called to imagine as we gather together. Second heading, by the way, the first heading was my longest, but laid down the theological framework. But the second one is the unchangeable God of Mount Zion. And, and we read of it in verses 25 through 29. Uh, also earlier when we read about God, the judge of all. But lest we think that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New, like Marcion did and was determined to be a heresy, the early church, lest we think that these are two different gods, the one of the old and the one of the new, in verses 25 through 29, we are reminded that grace doesn't mean judgment has ceased altogether. This is the same God. The covenant has changed. God is the same. And, his, and grace doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. That's one of the false concepts going around in our day about grace, is that, oh, you know, it's all grace. Sin doesn't matter anymore. Clearly here, it seems to think that that is not the case. In fact, the glorious grace of Zion makes it more important that we listen to the one who warns from heaven. Look with me again at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they, the ones before Mount Sinai, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from the, him who warns us from heaven, at that, same t- at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. For God to shake the earth is a mere trifle. He will soon, he says, shake the eternal Heavenly things. Why? So that anything seems to be in them that is not truly heavenly and eternal would fall out and only the eternal would remain. There is a day when what appears to be so certain now will no longer remain. On that day, what appears insignificant now is all that will matter. As Paul said to the Corinthians, when that time comes, now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We are receiving a kingdom. We are receiving that kingdom as we come to Mount Zion. We are receiving that kingdom as we seek the city to come. Receiving the kingdom requires living by faith in the unseen kingdom. This requires imagining what such a life might look like. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we need to imagine what it looks like to do God's will in our particular part of earth, in our household, our neighborhood, our city. What does it look like to resist the idols of the age in which we live? Greed, lust, self, so many others, but those seem to be right at the root of it all. What are the weights that we read about back up in verses 1 and 2 of this uh, 12th chapter in Hebrews? What are the weights that weigh us down while trying to live by faith? How do we throw them off? You know, the, the Corinthians were quick to say, well, you know, all things are lawful. To which Paul said, but all things are not beneficial. So there are things that weigh us down that in and of themselves may not be 
emphatically wrong, but they hinder our walk of faith. What are those things for you? Yours are probably different than mine. We can't merely stop playing video games with every spare moment. We must replace it with kingdom living by faith. Just to stop it without replacing it with something would be of no real value. And so to do so, we must first imagine ourselves living for the kingdom. Imagine what it would be like and think of the things that would be beneficial and play those out so that we might then do them and reap the benefit. Grace does not mean simply that right and wrong have ceased to exist. Grace means we are forgiven and that Christ lives in us, leading us in the way to true righteousness. Now the law, the Mosaic law, was given in order to produce life. But it produced death because of what was within us. Simply removing the law would never produce life. It would merely cause us to return to chaos, which is death. Law brings order, and it's intended to produce life. It was our inability that was the problem. Our culture's pursuit of freedom from all rules comes with its own set of rules. Why? Because we're hardwired for rules. Even the people that want to get rid of the rules, they keep making up new rules by which everybody has to live. The purveyors of the new morality, in which any morality is shunned, have rules and punishments to be doled out to those who don't cooperate. But this removal of boundaries is a turning toward chaos and ultimately death. M. Scott Peck, in grappling with the difficulty of defining evil, and he's a Christian psychotherapist, uh, but in grappling with the difficulty of defining evil and the fact that there's not a generally accepted definition of evil, he offers this anecdote at the beginning of this work. He says, For the moment, I can do no better than to heed my son, who, with the characteristic vision of an eight-year-old, or of eight-year-olds, explained simply, Why, Daddy, evil is live spelled backward. In other words, evil is in opposition to life. See, there is a morality. And that which is evil in God's eyes is that which destroys life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. The question is not whether we all must follow a set of rules, for we will. The question is whether those rules will lead to life or death. Whether they are true and right or false and evil. There is an unshakable, unmovable law of the universe, if you will, that remains true no matter what, and it will remain. As one author put it, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Here's the problem. We all have gone against the grain of the universe. We all have splinters. Only Jesus offers healing for the splinters, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a grain in the universe. The God of Mount Zion is unchangeable. We will give an account to Him. That leads to our third heading today, living in the shadow of Mount Zion. And, and, and really, this is application of everything we've talked about today, but everything we've talked about leading up to this as well, in so many ways. 
Imagining the kingdom in practice might be another heading I could give this section. And, and, and I want to start by saying this. Don't miss the primary application in this series. In the series, Imagining the Kingdom, the primary application is to imagine the kingdom. <laughs> it's, not, it's not too rough, right? You got that? <laughs> imagine the kingdom. See, I can stand up here and preach sermons week after week after week, and hopefully these sermons stir your imagination. But if you leave here and go home and don't ever imagine the kingdom beyond what we're talking about here, nothing has really occurred. I mean, the whole New Testament, it's not just Hebrews 11 and 12 where I've been spending this time. I could have done this series and started in Ephesians. We could have done it and started in John 8. Might spend time in all of those and more. We could go just about anywhere in the New Testament. Matthew 19 would be a good place to start. This is something the whole New Testament is calling us to. And it requires intentionality, even more so in our materialistic culture, because we've, in so many ways, we've lost our ability to imagine, to live in hope of a better world, a different world. If we're going to be a faithful gospel witness, bearers of the message of Christ rather than, a, than hospice aids to a dying church in America... We're going to have to imagine what is happening when we gather and what is happening when we scatter. We're going to have to imagine what is happening when we gather and what is happening when we scatter. First, let's look at what is happening when we gather. We're so accustomed to having a Bible, if not numerous Bibles, as well as versions in our phone and the reading leisure of a coffee shop that we're likely to miss the point that when the preacher preaching this sermon to the congregation, said, you have come. It was an existential statement. They had shown up. And they didn't just get in their comfortable air-conditioned car to get there. They walked there. It, It took effort to arrive at that place. So when he said, you have come, they knew he was talking about them in that moment that day had come. So when we read it, And I'm speaking it to you here today. And I say, you have come. It's talking about what the effort you put in today to get here. Which, yes, much less effort than maybe they did. Although you probably spent more time on your personal care than they did. And less time on the actual travel. I'm glad we have the personal care stuff. Don't get me wrong. You think this is ugly? You should try it before I work on it. My goodness. they had come when they gathered that day as a congregation he's saying oh you haven't come to mount sinai today you've come to zion now of course maybe in some places people come and they have come to mount sinai where they're hearing about the law and how terrible they are and how, how lousy their lives are, and, and, and their worms, and, and so on and so forth. But we've come to Mount Zion. Amen? 
he was effectively saying to them, when you gather with 20 to 50 people today, you're also gathering with innumerable company of angels and saints who have gone before you, and Jesus, our King himself, is with us as we gather. What, what do you imagine is taking place when we gather to worship? If only, if, if you only look at what you see without eyes of faith, you'll sooner or later find something much more exciting to be a part of than this. And the solution isn't to make this more exciting, since that could only increase our tendency to focus on what we see rather than faith. The point is we've come to something unseen. Not only do we need to exercise a sanctified imagination in our gathered life, we need to exercise a sanctified imagination in our scattered life. When we leave here, we return to the mission field. See, we're gathered by the call of God to worship, which is why we begin with a call to worship. God has called us from the fields of harvest and gathered us to worship His name. But when we leave, we're sent with His blessing that we might go back into the fields of harvest and labor for Him. And so in our scattered life, we need to use our imagination as well. And that's where chapter 13 picks up. I'm going to only cover the first six verses just because time wouldn't allow us to go further, though the whole chapter could be applied. But chapter 13 is not a subject change. The preacher has merely shifted the perspective. He's turning from their experience as they have come to their experience when they have gone. Consider how we need to exercise our imaginations to do what he speaks of in these first six verses alone. Keep on, we read in verse 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Keep on doing it. Not just when you're here. But in order to obey this, you have to begin by imagining that you are truly brothers and sisters just like God says. Now, that's a little different than, you know, we call one another brother and sister at church, but my real family is. No, it's, it's locking your imagination on the reality that you have a family in Christ. And that that family is real and vital. And therefore, we can keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Why? Because we are. If we don't imagine what is true, we are imagining what isn't true, which is called a lie. And if we live according to that lie, it harms rather than heals. Love is brothers and sisters. Imagine you are because you are. Second thing we see here in verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. (laughs) That's some serious imagination. Let's go over that again. You meet a stranger. You show them hospitality. Don't forget to do that. Why? Because you might be showing hospitality to angels. Oh, now come on. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's just silly. They're just people. Yes, in a materialistic world, that's impossible. But as a Christian, I've already rejected materialism as the basis of my my belief system. And if I haven't, then this whole thing's pretend anyway. I might as well just give up and go do something else with my time. 
And then notice the next one. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. Now there's, again, that takes imagination. Personally, I've never been in prison. Not being in prison has motivated me not to do certain things in my life. I don't want to be in prison. Okay? It doesn't seem appealing to me. What else does it say? And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Again, that requires imagination. As if you were together with them. As if you yourselves were suffering. So how do I remember those who are in prison or those who are suffering mistreatment as if I were there? Do I just think about them? Hmm, that's an awful plight. Is that what that means? No. If I myself were suffering, what would I want somebody who remembered me to do? Then I go and do likewise, whatever that is, right? You see, biblical remembering, remember the poor, we're told in Galatians. Biblical remembering involves action on their behalf. When God remembered his people, he always acted on their behalf. Okay? And so we're to remember them, and we're to imagine if we ourselves were there to think about how we should act on their behalf. Apparently, J.K. Rowling was correct. I, I referenced her, speech, her, her commencement speech at Harvard in 2008, a couple of weeks ago. But in that speech, you might remember that she said, Imagination is the power that enables us to empathize with humans whose experiences we have never shared. She seems to agree with the author of Hebrews. Remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now the next two that we see address two issues which have plagued God's people throughout its history, sexual purity and greed. The first, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. That's in verse 4. Now, I, I think it's important to note that first, that not you, not me, but God will judge the adulterer and sexually immoral. Now, that doesn't mean the church doesn't have to address issues as it relates to someone's inclusion in the family and so forth. That's a matter of safety and identity, but ultimately, God is the judge, and, not huma- and it's not humanity's role to punish. And this verse is not about other sexually immoral people. It's about you and me. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. This isn't a, some sort of tirade against sexual immorality in the culture. It's telling you, when you're tempted with sexual immorality, honor your marriage. Keep the marriage bed pure. Why? Imagine this. God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. That's enough imagination for me to give everything a second thought. We must imagine it, not because it isn't real, but because it hasn't happened yet, but it will. And because the world keeps telling us it doesn't matter. 
it will never happen. And then finally, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The deterrent for sexual immorality is fear about future punishment. But the antidote for greed is trust in God's presence and promise that he will be with you and never leave you. In other words, he'll protect and provide for you. The only way to keep our lives free from this love of money is to imagine God's promise to be true so that his presence will be with us and provide for us, that he will always be there to do it so we can be what? We can be generous. We don't have to fearfully try to keep everything we can and get more. We can be generous. This is the opposite of imagining the economy is going to fail and the hoarding that comes from that fear. It may fail, but God will be with me and provide for me. Reasons to fear for future provision abound, but they only lead to greed, to hoarding, to fear. Imagining what it looks like for God's uh, pre- promises to be true breeds trust and generosity. Now the chapter continues calling us to imagine things in line with the reality of what God says and that it is true in our scattered lives. Calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. And I would encourage all of us just to spend more time this week in these verses and the rest of the chapter seeking to transform our imaginations. Imagine the kingdom when you're gathered and imagine the kingdom when you're scattered back into the harvest field. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this offering that I present before these friends, this family today, to help us as a people to imagine the kingdom. To imagine the kingdom. And Lord, as we imagine the kingdom by your Spirit's power, transform us into a people who live doing your will on earth as it is in heaven that your kingdom might come in innumerable ways where we are, where we engage life, where we meet people, where we find those in need. For Lord, you didn't call us to be hospice aides to a dying church in America. You called us to be kingdom agents for your kingdom, to image you and represent your kingdom Expanding Eden to the ends of the earth, a fruitful place for people to live and dwell in. In Jesus' name, amen.